on December 18th, 2015, the force awakened. Some of you know what that means. After a, a decade of Star Wars silence, the first installment of a new trilogy of films opened in the United States. And The Force Awakens was a smashing success. It became the highest grossing film of 2015, even though it was released only a week before Christmas that year. It eventually went on to become the fourth highest grossing film of all time, earning well over $2 billion at the worldwide box office. $2 billion. Uh, both critics and fans loved it. It was certified fresh by Rotten Tomatoes and today remains the, the second highest ranked movie in the Star Wars franchise behind only The Empire Strikes Back. So what made The, the Force Awakens so successful? Uh, there's a number of reasons we could give. Uh, for example, the film didn't include any characters named Jar Jar Binks. But perhaps the, the most important reason was, was that the film was new, but not unique. If you were new to the Star Wars universe, like my children were when they watched it with me, it was a fun, fast-paced, exciting space adventure that you could follow and have a good time and, and grow to love the characters. But if you were a longtime Star Wars nerd like myself and some of you, you could watch The Force Awakens, and you could see layers upon layers of, of callbacks to previous films in, in the dialogue and the action sequences, even in the plot itself, and even callbacks to old characters. It was something that was really new and yet not unique. It was a, a, a new story that connected to an old story in an attempt to complete it. I think a similar thing is happening in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the Apostle Matthew, as he's writing this account of the life of Jesus, he wants us to see the story of Jesus as new, but not unique. It's a, it's a new story that connects to an old story and completes it. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And as I said earlier, if, if you're able to follow along in God's Word today, you're going to be greatly helped. So if you brought a Bible, go to Matthew 2. If you didn't, uh, open up your Bible app if you've got it. If you don't have the Bible app, open up Google and type in Matthew 2, 13, and you'll find it there. But you're going to be really helped if you can follow along. So just a little bit of context of where we are in the story. Just after uh, the visit from the Magi, we're, we're encountering a, a young family that is forced to flee as refugees from Bethlehem uh, because of a bloodthirsty, paranoid, power-hungry king. And in this story, there are three scenes, each followed by three references to something that the prophet or the prophet said. And in those three scenes, in those three prophetic references, we're going to see three ways that Jesus connects to and completes the Old Testament story. Number one, Jesus inaugurates a new and better exodus. Most of you in this room, if not all of you, are familiar with the Exodus story. 
Maybe just because you've seen the, the Ten Commandments with uh, Charlton Heston. But if you've read the story in the Bible, you know that 1,500 years before our story in Bethlehem, the, the Bible tells us about another bloodthirsty king. Like Herod, he was paranoid that the Jewish people were threatening his power. Like Herod, this, this bloodthirsty king concocted a, a plan to keep his hold on power. Like Herod, the Pharaoh's plan was to put to death baby boys. And like in that story told, told for us in the beginning of the book of Exodus, God sovereignly, supernaturally rescues from that bloodthirsty king's plot one child who will be a rescuer, a redeemer for the people of God. I want you to notice that Matthew believes that that exodus told for us in the Old Testament is actually pointing us to a new and better exodus inaugurated by Jesus himself. Now look at the text in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Even the reference to Egypt ought to be a callback of sorts as we think back to that Exodus story. But what's interesting here is that this deliverer, this savior, this rescuer will find rescue in Egypt, not away from it. Joseph and Mary are like refugees on the run, running away from a bloodthirsty king who wants to put them to death. Herod, as we learned last week, was a real king in real history who was really paranoid, who was willing to put his own children and wife and mother-in-law to death to keep his grip on the throne. And now he hears that there's a king of the Jews that's been born, and he wants to put him to death. And so an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and says, get away, go to Egypt. Herod is seeking the child's life. But what I want you to notice, brothers and sisters and friends here this morning, that this story is connecting and completing the Old Testament Exodus story. We see that in verse 15. Look at chapter 2, verse 15, where Matthew gives us his remarks. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, here's the question. Is there a prophecy that God would deliver his son, Jesus Christ, out of Egypt? Well, not exactly. Matthew is actually quoting Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. In Hosea 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Notice the text. When Israel was a child, God is referring to his nation, the entire nation of Israel, as his child. He says, I loved my people, and they were in bondage in Egypt, and I called them out. If you read Hosea chapter 11, it's really clear that Hosea the prophet is not looking forward to the Messiah, but backwards to what God has already done by rescuing his people out of Egypt. 
So what in the world is Matthew doing in Matthew chapter 2? The key is in that word fulfill. And you go back to Matthew 2, and you look at verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That word fulfill is a major word in Matthew's gospel. It's used three times in today's text. It's used 16 times throughout the gospel, more than any other gospel writer. One Bible commentator, an expert on the gospel of Matthew, says that the theme of the gospel of Matthew is that word fulfillment. So what does Matthew mean when he says fulfilled? If Hosea wasn't talking about a coming Messiah king going into Egypt and being rescued out of it, but looking backwards, then what is Matthew doing with that word fulfilled? Bible teacher Patrick Schreiner says, fulfill has a variety of meanings. And in different contexts, certain aspects might be highlighted, yet largely We can say that it means that Jesus fills up Jewish history. All things are brought to fruition in and through Jesus. Uh, Think of it like this. Uh, Imagine you are one of those coffee drinkers that likes to take your coffee with flavored cream. All right? Just imagine, that might be hard for some of you to imagine that, but just imagine it for a second that you prefer some flavored cream in your coffee. And imagine you've got in front of you a a mug of coffee, and it's half full with coffee, or half empty if you're a pessimist. But you've got your mug of coffee there, and it's half full, and you know it's not yet what it's supposed to be. It's not complete. Not only is the mug not full, but the drink isn't yet what it's meant to be. It's a shadow of what it's supposed to be. To make it really what it's meant to be, what you've always designed and desired it to be, you must fulfill it by adding in that flavored creamer. And in doing so, not only do you fill up the mug, because one of your, you're one of those people that needs that much cream, a little bit of coffee with your cream, as it were. So you fill up your mug, but also you kind of enhance the coffee, in a sense. You, you not utterly transform it, but you change it in a way. It doesn't turn into Kool-Aid or sweet tea, but it, it's changed just so slightly into what you had always intended it would be. It's not a perfect illustration because, after all, we're talking about flavored creamer and coffee, But I think it's helpful. When Matthew uses the word fulfilled, what he's telling us is is that Jesus is filling up the Old Testament story. But he's not just filling it up in the classic sense. He's actually showing us what it was always pointing to in the beginning, what it was always looking forward to in the first place. Matthew is saying that as Hosea and Hosea chapter 11 is looking backwards to the Exodus, that even Hosea was actually also looking forward to a future Exodus that Jesus would deliver us from. And if you read Hosea chapter 11, that's exactly what you find. Because even as Hosea writes about God rescuing his people from bondage to Egypt, Hosea also says that God's people are still in bondage. Not to another world ruler, but to sin. You know that from the story of the Old Testament, don't you? God's people get rescued from Egypt, but it doesn't take them long to return to the same type of sinful bondage that they were always caught in. 
And so at the end of Hosea chapter 11, the prophet writes that they shall go after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west and they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So Matthew is saying God's people were delivered from bondage from Egypt once, but they're still in bondage. Another deliverer must come. Another rescue must take place. Another exodus must happen. And a lion's going to come. And a lion's going to roar. And when he roars, a new exodus will begin. And Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, says that the lion is on the move. Jesus is moving. He's roaring. He's preparing to deliver his people. That's what Matthew is telling us, that Jesus isn't just going to Egypt. He is showing us that that whole story was actually pointing to a new and better exodus when God would deliver his people, not from a bloodthirsty Pharaoh, but from sin and Satan and death. Now, here's the thing. This lion, Jesus Christ, this deliverer rescued from Herod's clutches on his way to Egypt with his mom and dad is not just a lion, he's a lamb. And he's not one or the other. He's not back and forth like Gollum and Smeagol. He's, he's fully both. He's a roaring lion. And yet, this lion, the scripture says, is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. Or first Peter says that we were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So this story, the story of Jesus, this entire gospel that Matthew has given us through the Holy Spirit is telling us that Jesus his story is a new story that connects to an old story and completes it. Jesus is going to inaugurate a new and better exodus. He is going to come to set his people free. That's why he's come. Now let's stick with Jesus and his family for now. And let's move on to verse 19. And we'll go back, we'll circle back at the end to see what happened in Bethlehem when Jesus and the family left. In verse 19, beginning there, we will see the second way that Jesus connects to this old story, that Jesus not only inaugurates a new and better exodus, but a new and better kingdom. Jesus is coming to inaugurate, to begin a new and better kingdom. And once again, Matthew would invite us to see some layers here in the story, to not just see what's on the surface, but to notice the callbacks to other places in Scripture. So I want you to think back a few hundred years before the Exodus. I want you to imagine a tent outside of Egypt, and in that tent lies a man near death named Jacob. Jacob knows that his time is short. He knows he's about to die. So he calls his 12 sons into the tent so that he can bless each one of them before he dies. And if you know anything about that culture in that day, it was common that you would give the, the greatest blessing, the greatest promise, the greatest prophecy to the firstborn. But Reuben does not get the blessing. 
If you know anything about Jacob and his children, you know that Jacob's favorites were Joseph, who received the coat of many colors, and then his other son by the same woman, Benjamin, whom he also loved. But Joseph and Benjamin don't get the greatest blessing either. In a surprise twist that only happens, and only makes sense if God the Holy Spirit is leading Jacob to do this, Jacob prophesies the greatest blessing will come to Judah. Listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And notice what Jacob is saying on his deathbed to his son Judah. He's saying, Judah, your heir, your offspring will be a king, a forever king. The scepter will not depart from you. But not only will you be a forever king of this people, but all the peoples will come and bow before you. That's the promise. And it seemed forgotten for a long time, for a long time. Nearly a thousand years, that promise seemed forgotten until a little baby was born in Bethlehem. That baby was David. King David would become the greatest king that Israel had ever known. He was the man after God's own heart. He is from the line of Judah. He's this incredibly great king. And near the end of his life, when David says, I want to build a house for you, God, God says, no, David, I'm going to build a house for you. And God repeats the promise that a thousand years earlier had been made to Judah. He repeats it to David. There's coming a kingdom. And listen to what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so it's not coming in your time, David, it's after you. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God says to David, the, the seed of Judah, The forever king is coming, not you, David, from your offspring. David dies and Solomon raises up. And perhaps there are many who thought maybe it's Solomon, maybe he's the forever king, but Solomon quickly turns his heart away from the Lord. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, splits the kingdom, and within a few hundred years, the kingdom is completely gone. And it seems like, yet again, God has forgotten his promise. But he hasn't. Matthew believes that those old promises were actually pointing to a new and better kingdom that would be inaugurated by Jesus himself. Look with me at Matthew 2, 19. But when Herod died, once again, a king has died. There's another king that's still living. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, And go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Herod's dead. His son has taken his place. Joseph and his family, they don't want to return to Judea where Herod's son rules because they're concerned that perhaps Archelaus will want to kill baby Jesus too. 
Matthew wants us to see that God is, is sovereign in all of this. He's directing Joseph to a town called Nazareth on purpose. God makes no accidents. He is working in all of the details, even the small little details about where you and I live. And God sends this family to a little town called Nazareth for a reason. Look at verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that, here's the reason, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. There's that word again, fulfilled. A fulfillment is coming. That he would be called a Nazarene. Now, again, if you were to take your Bible and go to the back and find your concordance and look for a reference, what's the reference that Matthew is pointing to in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, what prophet said, quote, he will be called a Nazarene? Guess what? You will not find it. There is no Old Testament passage that says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. So what's happening? Can we trust our Bibles? Is Matthew wrong? Is Matthew quoting something that doesn't exist anymore? Did Matthew not understand the Old Testament? What's going on? What is this fulfillment that Matthew's talking about? The, the key, I think, is looking at the language Matthew uses. If you look at verse 15, Matthew says this was done to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. If you look at verse 17, he talks about the prophet Jeremiah. But what does he say in verse 23? Somebody talk at me. What's he say? Prophets. You see the difference? Plural. So Matthew's not referring to one particular quote. He's referring to a theme throughout the prophets. Well, what's the theme? I think that the answer comes in the name of the town, Nazareth. I'm going to put a picture on the screen for you, and you can see in Hebrew on the left, your left, I think, right? Yeah, your left. There you go. Uh, the word Nazareth. And if you look on the right, you can see that the characters, the letters in Hebrew are very similar. On the right is the word netzer or branch. Very similar, probably etymologically linked. So one Bible scholar, New Testament scholar named Andreas Kostenberger says this, Although it's impossible to know with certainty the original meaning of the Hebrew name Nazareth, it likely was quite closely related to branch, Netzer, and an English translation might very well render the town name Branchville or Branchtown. So, if you were living in Matthew's day, and you're reading Matthew's gospel, and you hear that God supernaturally sends Joseph and his family and baby Jesus to a town called Branchtown or Branchville. All of a sudden, if you know your Old Testament, alarm bells are going off like crazy. Because all throughout the Old Testament prophets, we're told about a branch that's coming. Listen to Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
And remember, Jesse is David's dad. So David's kingdom has been chopped down, and there's just a stump remaining. And it seems like that kingdom is never going to be resurrected again. God made a promise to Judah. He made a promise to David. But it seems like the promise will not be fulfilled. Isaiah says, wait a minute, that stump's there, and a branch is coming out of it. And listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Matthew is telling us, for those who have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, that the branch is here. Like David, Jesus is a king who will lead a glorious kingdom. But although this kingdom is similar to the one led by David, it will be different. The kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom that will transcend nationality and ethnicity. It's a kingdom without flags and without borders. It's a kingdom that spreads not by force, but by faith. This story in Matthew's gospel is a new story that's connecting to an older story. It's showing us how all those themes of a kingdom and a coming king are finding their fulfillment in nobody else but Jesus Christ himself. Now, as amazing as all of this is, there's a problem. If Jesus inaugurates a new and better exodus, why do I still feel like a slave? If Jesus comes to set his people free from bondage to sin, shouldn't you feel more free than you do? If Jesus inaugurates a new and better kingdom, why is this world so messed up? If Jesus is really the king of this new and better and glorious kingdom, why do I sometimes feel like the citizen of a slum? Shouldn't we feel like a little less pain if the king is here? I think the key for us is in that word in your outline, inaugurated. When we use that word inaugurate, Jesus inaugurating a new and better exodus and a new and better kingdom, we're saying he begins something, not that he completes it. So think back about the way we use this word in English. We have an inauguration day every four years when a new president's elected. That, that is the, the swearing in of a new president. It marks the beginning of a new era in American politics, but it's not the end of it. It's the beginning of something that's coming. So our exodus, Christian, your exodus from slavery has already begun, but it's not yet complete. That won't happen until you see Jesus and sin no more. The kingdom, your citizenship in it has already begun, but it's not yet complete. That won't happen until you're with Jesus forever. Which leads, I think to a really crucial and important question. How can I be sure that Jesus will keep his promise? Jesus says he's going to set me free, fully and finally forever. Can I really trust him to do that? Maybe you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus. 
And for you, that's the hang-up. How do I know that he's really trustworthy? How do I know it's not just another gimmick, another fad, another hero who lets me down? How, how can I know that Jesus really will keep his promise and establish that new and better kingdom? How do I know it's not just pie in the sky and all of you are just wasting your lives for nothing? What if he doesn't keep his promises? We're going to find the answer to that question in an unlikely place. We'll find it amidst the sound of screams in the city of Bethlehem. And there we'll see We can trust Jesus to finish what he started because Jesus establishes a new and better covenant. Covenant is a promise, an unbreakable promise between God and his people. In in the final scene of our story, the Spirit highlights a tragedy in the city of Bethlehem. That's in verses 16 to 18. This has been called the massacre of the innocents. If you Google that phrase, you would find pictures of artwork throughout church history that are commemorating the evil that happened in Bethlehem that night. Some have said that these were the first martyrs for the cause of Christ, these little children that were put to death by a bloodthirsty king. Some people look at this story and they say it's a myth. It didn't happen. We know a lot about Herod. We talked about that last week. Herod, is, his story is well told for us throughout history. It's well attested to by different historians. But search through all the historians and you will not find a reference apart from Scripture to the massacre of the innocents. And people say, aha, if that really happened, if a bloodthirsty king really went into a town like Bethlehem and put to death hundreds or thousands of little baby boys, you would think that somebody outside of the Bible would write about it. Most Bible scholars believe that it was only several dozen babies that were killed in Bethlehem. It was a small village after all. And, And I use that word only not to minimize the tragedy of what happened there, but to explain why history is silent about what happened in Bethlehem. You see, it made the news, if you want to put it that way, it made the news when Herod killed his wife, when Herod kills his mom, when Herod kills his sons. But the news had other things to talk about when a few dozen baby boys in Bethlehem die one night. And here's why I think our God is so incredible because their story is seen and recorded by him. Just just to pause for just a moment, suffering Christian, he sees your pain. He is not silent to your pain. He is not ignorant of where you hurt and how you hurt. He sees it. So we have recorded for us this tragic story in the pages of God's word. Listen to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Do you remember last week, Herod asked the the wise men, the magi, tell me exactly when you first saw the star. 
He did that with a nefarious plot in mind so that he could put to death anyone who might be close to the age of baby Jesus. And so he determines two and under. Every boy in Bethlehem, every single one will die. I want you to put yourself in the people's shoes for a second. A young mom gives birth to a baby. She smiles when she hears that it's a boy. She feeds him, sings to him, changes him, smells his head when he sleeps. Her heart expands as he learns to roll over and then crawl and then take his first steps. She smiles when he smiles. She laughs when he laughs. And she cries when he cries. She loves her baby boy and cannot imagine the thought of her world without him. And one day, without warning, soldiers from six miles north in Jerusalem come to her house, take her baby, and put him to death. You imagine the tragedy of that moment. You imagine the pain of that moment the devastation. No wonder Matthew's first instinct is to take us to a passage that says there are women weeping and they will not be comforted. Can you imagine receiving comfort after something like that? This past week, I talked with my parents because it was supposed to have been the 21-year birthday of my baby brother I've told you about that died at the age of two. And I talked to my parents, how you doing? And they said, it still hurts. It still hurts. Imagine the pain these people are going through. Listen, brother, sister, friend, let me just stop and say to you, the Bible, the Bible is sometimes a very messy book, a very messy, painful stories. I appreciate that about the Bible. Because that's what the world's like. I, I, don't know, I don't know your story. I don't know what led you in this room this morning. But I guarantee you this. You've seen just a little bit of that mess. And just a little bit of that pain. Maybe you've seen a lot. Is there hope amidst that pain? Is there joy amidst that suffering? Is there anything good that can come out of chaos like that? Where is God when tragedies like this happen? Matthew wants us to see that God is sovereign even over this suffering, that there is hope even amidst this horror. Once again, Matthew wants us to see that this story is a new story that's connecting to an older story and completing it. Once again, he points us back to the Old Testament prophets, and he says in verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, if you have a Bible, a physical Bible in your hand, I would invite you to hold your finger in Matthew chapter 2 and turn in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 31. That's where Matthew is referring to. If you're using an app, next time bring your Bible. No, I'm just teasing. You can use your app. We love you. App users. 
So Jeremiah 31 is where Matthew's referring to. And, and I, want you to, I want you to maybe visualize what Matthew is doing. He's pulling on some threads from Jeremiah chapter 31. So imagine this great tapestry and Matthew's pulling on three threads and he's gonna use those threads to show you how the tapestry there is pointing to a bigger and more glorious and more beautiful tapestry fulfilled in Christ. Three threads in Jeremiah 31 that Matthew's pulling on. The first is the name Rachel. So if you look at Jeremiah 31, I believe it's verse 15. Jeremiah 31, verse 15, he refers to Rachel. Who's Rachel? In Genesis 35, uh, Rachel, who's the, the, the wife, the, the favorite wife of Jacob, gives birth to a son named Benjamin. You remember, Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. Joseph was his favorite son. Joseph is sold into slavery, so Jacob is without his favorite son. Benjamin's born. This is going to be amazing. I've got a new favorite. But then Rachel starts weeping. Why? Because the childbirth is going to take her life. Rachel will die after delivering Benjamin. And Jacob would bury his wife, Rachel, in no, no other place but Bethlehem, small town, six miles south of Jerusalem. So even though Rachel is long gone by the time Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 31, he references her poetically as a, a mother in the faith. The second thread that Matthew's pulling on. First there's Rachel, then there's Ramah. Verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah. Ramah. Where is Ramah? Well, Ramah is a city about six miles north of Jerusalem. So you've got these two cities, Rachel buried in Bethlehem, six miles south, and Ramah is six miles north, both real cities that you can visit today. And Ramah, what's the significance of Ramah? It's connected to Benjamin and Rachel because Ramah was actually part of Benjamin's territory. But Jeremiah references it here because this is the place where God's people were taken away into exile. If you were, just imagine what it must have been like for people to be taken away and put in slavery in another country. If some other foreign power came to the United States and exiled a bunch of us, you think we would remember the place where that happened. Ramah is where that exile happened where the deportation took place. And so Jeremiah says that they're weeping and Ramah. Why? Because their children have been taken away. They refuse to be comforted because their children are taken away. Like Daniel, we heard about earlier in the prayer, they're taken away to Babylon. And Rachel's descendants refuse to be comforted because they'll never see those boys and girls again. There's a third thread that Matthew's pulling on in Jeremiah 31, and that's rejoicing. This is a surprising thread because even though Matthew quotes this passage that's filled with sadness, if you read Jeremiah 31, I'd encourage you to do that this afternoon. Sit down and read Jeremiah 31. It's filled with joy. It's filled with joy from beginning to end. There's joy all over it, rejoicing all over it. Just look at verse 13. 
Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Now, if you know anything about the prophet Jeremiah, you know that joy is not his thing. He's the guy that wrote the book of Lamentations. Do you remember when we studied that? I heard one member said to me that if if Lamentations was one chapter longer, he probably would have jumped off a bridge. It's that depressing. There's hope there. There's joy there too. But it's hard stuff. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He's the one who prophesied when Jerusalem is destroyed during the exile. He's going through misery and much of Jeremiah is really hard stuff. And yet this chapter is overflowing with joy. Why? Because of another promise. Look at verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31 is overflowing with joy and rejoicing because God says the day is coming when I'm going to have a personal relationship with every single person in the covenant, every one of them. From the least to the greatest, all of them will know me, and my spirit will will be inside them, and I will forgive their sin and remember it no more. Dear brother, sister, friend, do you know what that's pointing to? None other than Christ himself. Do you see why Matthew is drawn to this passage in Jeremiah? Just as God brought hope and promise out of, the, of a new covenant, out of the horrors of exile, God will bring hope and, and joy out of the horrors of what happened in Bethlehem. And if you ask yourself this morning, well, how can I know for sure? How can I trust him? Here's the answer, brother, sister, friend. The father did not rescue Jesus from Bethlehem so that he wouldn't have to die. I want you to hear that. The father didn't rescue Jesus from Bethlehem so that he would be saved from death. The father rescued Jesus out of Bethlehem so that he would be saved for death. Because Christ will die, not by Herod's sword, but by Pilate's nails on Pilate's cross. This Jesus will live a sinless life and so fulfill all righteousness. And then he will die a sinner's death. 
the death that you and I deserve. And God, in that moment, on that cross, says to you, I keep my promises. Trust me. The story of Jesus is a new story that connects to an old story and completes it. Jesus establishes a new and better covenant. I was thinking this morning about The Force Awakens, and, and it occurred to me that whether you're a new, you were a newbie watching Star Wars for the first time or a lifelong fan enjoying all the callbacks to previous films, at the end of the movie, it didn't really matter. Because Star Wars doesn't demand a response, right? Star Wars tells you a story. It doesn't demand a response. The Bible is incredibly different. Now listen, listen to me. Before you put your Bibles away, before we get ready to leave this morning, if all we see in Matthew chapter 2 is some really cool layers and connections between the Old and the New Testament, and we don't respond to it, we're in a very, very dangerous place. God's Word demands a response. If you're in this room and you get more excited about seeing connections in the Bible, you get more excited about that than obeying the Bible, there's a huge problem in your soul, brother, sister. So how do we respond to all this? Let me just suggest three applications. Number one, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. If you're in this room and you feel enslaved by your sin, only Jesus can set you free. You can try your hardest to put it to death on your own. You can even give up an addiction, but you'll probably substitute it for another one. Only Jesus can truly, fully, and finally set you free. I invite you, dear friend, please come to Jesus today. Maybe you're in this room, you don't feel like a slave, but you just feel unfulfilled. You feel like you're, you're, you're made for greatness, like this life should be bigger than a nine to five for 40 hours a week until you retire, and then you just sit around until you eventually are so old, you gotta be in a nursing home and you can't make it anymore. Life ought to be more than just that, right? You're created for something more than just that. Yes, you are, but what's the answer? What is it that you are made for? I can guarantee you it's, it's bigger than fame. It's bigger than money. It's bigger than pleasure. You are made for a kingdom. And Jesus invites you in, if you will, come to him. So how do I do that? By doing what the Bible says, repenting. We'll talk a lot about repentance next week. But simply for now, it's to turn around. Stop going the way you're going and turn to Jesus. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to meet him today, you can meet him right where you are. You can head to the white flag when we sing or after the service and talk to someone about what it means to follow Jesus and we'd love to pray with you. Here's a second application, cling to Jesus. If you're a Christian in this room, cling to Jesus. Sometimes you're gonna feel like a slave even though you're free. Sometimes you're going to feel like there is no kingdom. 
even though there is. Sometimes you're going to suffer such immense pain that you will refuse to be comforted. Take heart, brother, sister. From the very beginning of Jesus' earthly life, to look like Jesus was to suffer. From the very beginning. He's not going to let you go, Christian. Cling to him. If you know him, don't let go. One of the ways we cling to him is by clinging to each other. And as we all grab on to each other, church, we grab on to him together. Don't let go. He's coming. He's coming and he will establish a kingdom so glorious we can't even begin to fathom how amazing it will be. Cling to Jesus. Finally, care like Jesus. Care like Jesus. In this story, we see a glimpse of the common victims of Satan's attacks. We saw it at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. We see it today. We've seen it in the 2,000 years in between the two. Satan loves to prey upon the vulnerable, runaway refugees, weeping women, defenseless babies. As we continue in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to devote his entire ministry to caring for and healing people like this. Throughout Christian history, yes, there have been shameful moments when Christians, rather than stooping down to care for the vulnerable, we've scooted in next to the Herods of this world and we've looked for power. But by God's grace and for his glory, the great stream of Christian history is a stream of brothers and sisters and martyrs who have died to care for the sick, to care for the hurting, to bring justice to the widow, to, to adopt orphans, to love those that are completely on the outsides of society. That has been the great stream of followers of Jesus, and you, Christian, are invited in to care for people like that. <laughs> when you do that, when we do that, when I do that, we connect our story, our new stories, to that old story. And we get to play a part, not in completing the story of Christ. Remember, he said on the cross, it is finished. But we get to take part in receiving its joy. Would you make that the goal of your week, dear Christian, to care like Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible love. Father, I thank you for the Apostle Matthew and for the way you used him to observe and record for us these incredible connections to everything that you were doing throughout the scriptures. But Jesus, you're the one that fulfilled it. You are the hero to whom this story points. You're the savior. You're the branch. You're the suffering servant, the conquering king, the lion and the lamb. May we leave here with hearts overflowing with love and affection for you, 
so that they spill over people all around us that need your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with me and sing with me. Thank you.